Welcome to the Collective Scope Podcast, where we talk to great leaders who are influencing the next generation. Hey everybody, welcome to the uh, Collective Scope Podcast. This is your host today, Rob Fulson. I'm here with uh, pastor, founder, CEO of City of Refuge, Bruce Deal. And man, what a great honor it is for us to have him on the show. Uh, so Bruce, thank you so much for being here and uh, really being a part of the Collective Scope podcast. And uh, you're here this week at the University for Missions Week and uh, just had an incredibly powerful opening service today. Uh, so I encourage you to go back and uh, watch that. You can check that out on the website, the university's website. Uh, but anyway, I wanted to start off this uh, episode just to kind of get you to know Bruce just a little bit. One of my favorite stories that Bruce tells uh, is how he got the name Ghetto Rev. And so, uh, but Bruce and I are both country boys from Virginia, from the same area in Virginia. And, uh, you know, it's funny how, how the Lord moves. So, hey, Ghetto Rev, welcome to the show. Tell us the story. Yeah, well, thank you, Rob. Thanks for the opportunity to be on the show. Yeah, I went downtown 22 years ago on this assignment. We thought to close a little church, sell the property, and been there 22 years now. Phenomenal journey. But early on in that journey, I met a, a guy in the streets named Jake. And uh, Jake at the time was 57 years old when I met him, had been homeless and addicted for about 20 years uh, prior to that, had actually grown up on a plantation in South Georgia, escaped that, ended up becoming a PGA teaching pro in the golf and uh, fell subject and, and victim to addiction and alcoholism. Uh, but he met me. Uh, we met and just started hanging out and talking. And early on, he said, you're a preacher, aren't you? Uh, somehow I gave off that aura. And he said, you're a preacher. I said, yeah. So we talked a little bit. And so he called me Rev for a little bit. Uh, but there was one night in particular where um, he, had, he had left one of our addiction recovery homes and he was out in the streets. And I went looking for him, found him in this little lotto shop that was a drug dealing and gambling joint. And, uh, and Jake came running over to me and he goes, come on, ghetto rev. And I go, ghetto rev. He goes, come on, you got to get out of here. They're going to kill you. And I go, who's going to kill me? And he goes, people in this place, they don't know who you are. And he, and so he just labeled me the ghetto rev. He knew I was a reverend and he found me hanging out in the ghetto. So he decided I was the ghetto rev. And he started telling everybody around in our feeding lines and our distribution centers, that's the ghetto rev. Y'all show him some respect, treat him well. That's the ghetto rev. And so they called me the Ghetto Rev uh, in the hood for a long time, and eventually they just dropped Rev. And so they just <laughs> called me Ghetto. And uh, so Jake, for 13 years until he passed away when he was 70, his name for me was Ghetto, and uh, everybody knew that was a term of endearment. It wasn't derogatory. Yeah. It was actually a term of endearment. So I actually have a Bible. One of, my, uh, one of the guys in our church uh, gave me a Bible several years in and had it embossed on the front, Ghetto Rev. So I actually have a Bible that... If we would normally have my name, it has Ghetto Rev, so it's one of my favorite things I have. That's amazing, I, and I love that story. And, and you're right, it is. it was a term of, of endearment for you. But I think for me, you know, when you tell that story, and I've heard you tell that story before, but when I think about that story, man, I just think about the genuine impact and influence that you have had on people's lives, and you are not the picture of inner-city urban ministry. I mean, you're white— from from Virginia, country boy, right? Yep. And uh, God just put you in this place. And I was actually talking to somebody after uh, after chapel this morning, and they just simply said, "If that is not a picture of the New Testament, I don't know what is." Mm. And I think you know, and I and I mentioned in service today, they were first called Christians in in Acts, 
because they were followers of Jesus and what they did, what they modeled, how they lived. And I think, you know, in whatever slang or terminology that we could paint, I think that idea of, of being ghetto rev for me is the equivalent to being called a Christian for the first time. And man, I just, if you don't know anything about the city of refuge, uh, they are doing amazing work, not only in downtown Atlanta, but uh, you have 13 or 14 locations yeah. across the country now. Yeah, we have some other locations. We have five in Georgia now, three in Virginia. We are, we're in Chicago, Baltimore, um, Sacramento, and we have, uh, we're opening in Dallas this year. So some great affiliates around the country taking the model of what we do and planning it in their own cities. A lot of fun to see that unfolding before us. That's amazing. Um, you know, so today we're, we're talking a lot about uh, missions, and you opened up the service with this whole idea of obedience. Uh, also not a very popular topic, I think, uh, today, but, but honestly, it was, it was a powerful representation of what it really means to, to allow Christ to lead your life. And I think, you know, for, for students or for leaders who are listening, uh, that is a challenge that we're always up against. And so in your life, how have you kind of been able to reconcile some of the risks that you talk, talk about, talked about. Um, obviously, there's no routine, some of those things. So as we, as we maybe even desire to follow Christ to that extent, how have you been able to help uh, other people and how have you been able to yourself just overcome some of those fears of taking that risk? Well, I think when we talk about obedience, particularly, that's contrary to our flesh, number one, and it's contrary to the culture in which we live. So the right. culture in which we live is a, is a me first culture and our flesh obviously is me first. And so when we talk about obedience, uh, it, there came a place in my life where I had to make a determination. I'm going to live my life the way I want to live my life and love Jesus a bit. Or am I going to completely surrender my life and let him live his life through me, as Paul talks about in Galatians? And when I came to that point, I realized the only real way to do that was to be completely obedient to him. So I really only have two sort of things I strive to do on a daily basis. I strive to hear and obey. So hear what the Lord is saying to me and then obey what he's saying. You know, between hearing and obeying, I have to determine, is that a now word or a future word? That's really the only decision I have to make. You know, once I hear it, I know it's his assignment. I got to figure out when my obedience happens and how it happens. And, and once you have lived, I think, for me anyway, once you have lived a year, two, ten, whatever it is of obedience, the reward that comes out of obedience so overwhelms the risk mm. associated with it. On the front end, it's hard. On the front end, when you're trying to convince a young disciple, obey the Father, you know, somebody that's never been down that path, they have not yet seen the blessing which comes from obedience. It's more challenging. Uh, so that's the reason we relate stories a lot about the yeah. results that have happened and the rewards to try and encourage and motivate others along the way. You know, our first few years, there were some results and some rewards, but there were far more risk and real risk. Uh, and so we always have to look beyond what we can see. Right. Yeah. So it's a spiritual mindset. I have to look beyond that. And so, I, you know, as those that listen, consider their own obedience. If we have heard from the father, then we should obey the father, regardless of what the first day or first week or first year of that obedience looks like. Still the right thing to do. Yeah. And I think this idea um, and I, I just wrote this down is this idea of radical discipleship um, certainly is is not the most natural thing to do, like you talked about. Um, but, you know if I could just get stereotypical for a minute, we live in a very immediate gratification culture world, right? Everything's at our fingertips and it's hard to disciple. 
And it's hard to be a radical disciple in that respect when when God's timing is not our timing, when God's God's idea or concept of time is not our idea or concept of time. So so for those those who are listening, I think I think the important conversation to have is is that radical discipleship can only be fostered in that heart of obedience, that that willingness to pursue. And I think what you're modeling uh, through the city of refuge um, is is exactly the pattern that needs to be modeled. And I love this idea of narrative because it's what what culture is buying into. Sure. And so the power of story has never really changed, right? I mean, I think that's a very biblical thing to do. Jesus taught a lot with stories. Um, and so for you, those stories, uh, I think, which is important to note, is not stories that you sought, right? Right. They're stories that you had to live. Right. I mean, there's, you tell some of the most incredible stories I've ever heard, but they're stories that you didn't ask for. Yeah, well, and we didn't, and, and some of them I wish I couldn't tell. You know, yeah. it's, uh, you look back at some. You know, when you talk about radical discipleship, radical obedience, I think it's important to note that I don't, that only comes out of radical relationship. Mm-hmm. So if we have a radical relationship with the Messiah, a radical relationship with the Father and the Spirit, then that gives us sort of this courage to move forward into radical obedience. When I sit with young people especially that are trying to find their way in, in Christ, find their way uh, in their relationship with Christ, often it's 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 a real relationship, but it's not a radical relationship. Mm. And so the fear of the unknown and the risk factor causes them to back up a little bit and cower away sometimes. When we move to place of radical relationship with the Father, radical obedience becomes much easier. And in the radical relationship and radical obedience, then these stories begin to unfold. And again, because we're in an inner city and we're surrounded by crime and addiction and homelessness, our stories take on a different tone sure. and flavor. But I think the impact of somebody's story who's in the corporate world or in education right. or whatever it may be, it's just as radical a story. The flavor's a little bit different, but if somebody comes from a place of being lost and now being found, that's as radical a story as they get. So it, it, again, the flavor may be different, but the underlying message of all the stories, when we reveal the radical relationship lived out in radical obedience, then somebody else is going to have a radical encounter with Christ too. The story may sound different, but the end result is the same. Absolutely. And I think, you know, you told the story this morning, um, between billionaires and broken people, you have conversations all over the board now, right? And I think think it's so cool to watch how God has sort of both prepared you and opened those doors for you to to lead those conversations in in both arenas. And so uh, the idea or this concept then of of a radical relationship, um, I don't think this culture is afraid to do things, right? We live in a very activist-generated culture. But I think the the why behind, and, you know, you, you're friends with Simon Sinek, so he talks a lot about the why, right? So I think helping young people discover, helping students discover the why behind they do stuff is so important. So in your experience, as you've kind of journeyed through now a little ways, um, at what point did you realize the why behind what you're doing? Yeah, I don't know if I can answer at what point. I just yeah. know it sort of evolved. Mm. And and to your point, especially the millennials, the younger generation are all about action. They're all about doing something. They're about social justice. They're about empowering those that, that don't have place in life, a voice in life. Right. But often it is, if it's not directed right and because of the right why, then it is just activity. Mm. And activity for activity's sake ends up leaving us feeling void and empty. And so... 
I, somewhere along the way, once we got downtown and I started to dive deeper into the what I call the compassion part of the scripture, right? Mm-hmm. So I started to read Isaiah 58 with different eyes that said, you know, this is the fast I have required that you bring into your house the homeless poor and divide your bread with the hungry. Well, that's a big word, require. Micah 6, 8, again, the prophet says, the Lord says through the prophet, this is what I require of you, that you do justice, that you love kindness and that you walk humbly before the Lord your God. And then, you know, Matthew 25, obviously, 1 John 3, all of these passages of scripture that talk about how we live out a radical relationship. And so it came to the point, I think, I grew up in a pastor's home. My dad was a wonderful, wonderful godly man. But I think often in my life, I did things out of religious or spiritual obligation. Coming to the point of doing that out of desire versus out of obligation is, is radically freeing, right? Now I get to care for the poor. I get to, right. I have the opportunity to, it's not something that's required so I can check a box and say, I did it. And I think especially, uh, you know, with you working with students in a college age, when they can buy that why, and they can say, this is why I've accepted Christ. And this is why I'm going to choose to walk out the life. The impact they can have is more than any of us can imagine right now. Yeah. And I, I literally just preached a couple of weeks ago in Isaiah 58. It's one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. Uh, the the repair of broken walls, mm-hmm. the restores of streets with dwellings. And just even, even that language alone talks about restoring dignity to human life. And um, one of the things that you guys do at City Refuge is, is absolutely restore dignity to human life. Um, so tell me a little bit of a few things that, that you guys do, because you guys do so many different things across the board. You have so many partnerships, corporate, church, otherwise. So uh, what are a few things that you guys do to help provide opportunities for people to have that dignity restored to their life? Sure, sure. Well, one of our biggest things we started years and years ago is, is a transitional center for mothers with children experiencing mm-hmm. homelessness. And so all their dignity has been stripped away. They've been standing in food lines or visiting a trash can behind a building, sleeping under a bridge with their children. So when they come to our place, they can live for the, there for six months. But every time a mother and her children move out, we completely redo that room, that living space. Oh wow! So when a mom and her children move out, we strip the carpet, repaint the room, put down fresh carpet, bring in fresh linens so that it's a new environment for that mother and her children. She's not moving into somebody else's mm. homeless environment. It's amazing what that one little thing costs $500 to flip a room and it's amazing the eternal impact 500 bucks can have. Uh, high, fo- high quality food service, medical, mental health, dental, and vision. Again, you think somebody coming out of homelessness or coming out of incarceration or coming out of addiction, they haven't done any preventive care around dental or around medical, sure. right? So now we're able to do restorative care, but we're also able to offer preventive care. So if a mother with a two-year-old shows up, now we can start regular cleaning of the teeth so they don't have to have dental care down the road somewhere. Uh, you know, education, many of the folks that we serve, men and women, didn't finish high school. They don't have their, so doing adult literacy in a GED. And it's amazing the the joy that comes on our face when they pass that third GED right. section and know that now they have a diploma, you know. Um, job training, you know, we do a ton of stuff around uh, employ, putting people into the employment field after they've gone through a vocational training program with us. So again, if you didn't graduate high school, you haven't had a job in your whole life, and all of a sudden you're going to, to work at UPS at 24.50 an hour, 
This is a life change. Yeah. This is not just a job. This is a career opportunity that gives you a sense of value and personal identity and dignity. So again, quality food, dressing them well, giving them a great place to live, giving them job opportunities, education, all in the name of Christ, but all sort of just because we care and the, the sort of evangelism piece follows that. We don't lead with, hey, by the way, do you know Jesus? Right. We lead with, are you hungry? Yeah. We lead with, do you need a bed, right? Yeah. So the felt needs give us the opportunity to start in a conversation about the eternal need that they have. That's so great. And I think one of the things that, you know, I think for me, City of Refuge has really highlighted is even in our very um, political culture that is, you know, it's difficult to navigate, right? So I think, you know, one of the things that I love about the City of Refuge, you guys are unapologetically faith-based. You wear Jesus on your heart. You wear Jesus on your sleeve. Jesus is tied into every single thing that you do, and you're not apologetic about that. And yet still, you have been able to build enormous bridges with non-religious communities, with non-religious leaders at high, high levels, politically, corporately, et cetera. And you've been able to do that very, very well. And one of the things that I'm absolutely fascinated by is um, is this partnership that you've been able to create. So um, kind of walk me through how how you began that journey of, of partnering with people who of, of unlike faith and doing it in such a way that you both can can lean into that and and have a positive influence. Yeah, it's a great question. And and we look back and See the hand of God, obviously, but sure. what we decided early on, I share with some of my staff early in our journey, let's do just, just do the right thing the right way over and over and over. And eventually that story tells itself. Mm. So I consult with a, a number of nonprofits that always want to tell their story first. And I'm like, let's, tell, let's let our story tell itself after we have results. And so that's the way we chose to live. And what happened was literally... As we live this out and people begin to see radical life transformation, we begin to put people in homes and in the workforce, individuals from outside of the faith community approached us, right, because of the results. Right. Uh, people in today's age, uh, in, in the age in which we live now, very few people fund your vision anymore. They mm. fund your results. Mm -hmm. And so that's what happened for us as we just started having incredible success. <coughs> Excuse me. We started having incredible success. And people started approaching us. And when they would come to us, they would say, why do you do what you do? Back to your why yeah. question earlier. And we would say, we do what we do because of our relationship with Christ, but we do it in a practical way that meets the real needs somebody has today. And so there were a lot of conversations with those corporate and non-faith environments early on about, well, we don't want to feel like we're funding your religious yes. efforts. Yeah. And I'm like, well, you're not funding our religious efforts. You're funding our practical efforts, which have a faith base and foundation to mm -hmm. them. And almost everybody has bought that, right? I mean, they've just said, okay, it's working. I may not agree with your theology. I may not agree with your faith, but what you're doing for people is helping their lives to be transformed. And you've impacted 20,000 folks in our community in the last 22 years. We want to be a part of something that's effective and something that's working. Yeah, and I think, I think what it's a, a good indicator is that we can actually live our faith openly and still be very, uh, you know, we can navigate very well the, the corporate sort of political world in such a way that, that it does bring honor to Christ, and there is no compromise. No one's asked you to compromise what City of Refuge does, which is absolutely amazing. So um, <clears throat> so you, you've been there for 22 years at City of Refuge. 
You've guys done it, an incredible work. Uh, what is what is God sort of speaking to you now about the horizon of of City of Refuge? I mean, now that this thing is is blown up, um, you know, you've got a book out, Trust First. Um, it's it's already on the LA Times bestseller list. Uh, you have incredible people like Simon Sinek who are abdicating for it. Um, what do you see happening next? What is what is next for the City of Refuge? Well, I think there are a couple things. We we started a number of years ago consulting with other smaller, generally nonprofits around the country. So being able to go in and sit down with boards of directors and executive teams and evaluate their programs and help them figure out how to scale. Mm. So I think that's one of the things we're able to do is take 22 years of experience all the things that we learn how to do and how not to do and sort of help others not have to make some of the mistakes we made. I think that's one valuable thing that, that we can do and that we are doing that the horizon shows we'll do more of. The other thing is platform. You know, for all of us that are Christ followers, the more platform we have, the more opportunity we have for other folks to be joined to the body of Christ. And so with, with the launch of the book and with some relationships like Simon Sinek and other corporate that have me speak, we're just having a larger platform right now. Yeah. And, and to your point about not compromising, whatever platform I'm on, they know in advance and I'm going to tell my face story. So no matter if it's a corporate environment, I tell them on the front end, by the way, if you want me to speak, I have to tell my story and my story includes my faith journey. And so it gives me a great opportunity to go in and not only talk about community transformation and how to impact the homeless or how to help returning citizens out of incarceration, but to also paint the picture with Christ as the background, yeah. as the canvas on what that picture is painted. So I think the opportunity to tell the story of, of the relationship with Christ that I have and that our staff has and others is becoming more and more vast and expanded for us as a result of the 22 years and of, of some of the exposure we're getting right now. Um, most people probably don't realize this, but you're still full-time pastoral ministry, right? You started off in pastoral right. ministry, I think, for 14 years before you even went to Atlanta. Uh, so I know that's still your heart. I still believe that the local church is the key to all of these things that we're talking about. Sure. Um, and I think we have more talent, capability, calling, anointing in our pews than we do anywhere else in the world. One of my great passions and sort of one of the great things about, about this show is we really want to tie incredible leaders like you back to the local church. And so how can the local church who may not have the platform that you have in, at City Refuge, but what can a local church leader do? What can a local church congregation do in their communities to actually begin to start to maybe make some headway with some of these issues that we're facing? Well, I think it's a conversation first among key leaders in that congregation, sure. right? So what's the conversation? How do we feel about our community? How do we look at our community? You know, what's what's our attitude toward those in crisis? You know, from a, and from a pastoral perspective, if you start to pick up from your congregation that the attitude is it's us and them, that's a challenge, right? Or if they come here, then we'll serve versus us going there, right. then we'll serve. And so I think conversation's critical. I think analysis and evaluation of a community is important. 
when we go in to, and speak in churches, and, and I do still pastor the church, but I travel and speak about 30 Sundays a year, so I'm only at my church about 20 or so. And when I go in, I sit down with pastoral staffs. So I often ask them, can you tell me what the issues in your community are? Yeah. And usually they tell me what the symptoms of the mm. issues in their community are. And so having a deeper conversation and go, well, actually, those are the results of the issues. Can we talk about the issues and see how your church might be equipped to do that? And so we've helped churches do everything from literally just starting a small food pantry all the mm. way to starting a vocational training program that impacts their community with people getting livable wage income addiction recovery and homes for those coming out of incarceration or coming out of homelessness. So I think it's a, it's a lot of it is what's the heart of the leader and what's the heart of the leaders around the leaders, mm -hmm. right? And so, and then you filter that down. And if the leader has a heart for a, a, B or C, and then the leaders around the leader have that heart, then they're able to share that with that community uh, and with that church community. I do, I always say that it's important to start, do less well, do less better before you do Try the big thing. Don't try to change yeah, your community that's today. Good. Change one heart, one life. You know, so do less well, less better, uh, before you jump into trying to change the whole community. A lot of times, when uh, somebody like myself or other folks, great great people that do inner city or overseas mission, we speak and people get inspired, and all of a sudden they try to turn the world mm. upside down in a week. Uh, that never works, right? right? So figure out what the first step is and take that step on the way to the next three or four steps he may have for you. And that's so hard because, uh, I mean, we are dream chasers, dream promoters, like follow your dream, pursue your passion. And uh, I think it's I think there's a there's a wisdom in strategy. Right. Plus anointing, plus God's calling. Uh, that is so critical. And I think, um, uh, you know, we we don't we don't spend enough time evaluating sort of or assessing yeah, this is what God has put in my heart to do, but what does that look like in the real world? Right. Because, you know, somebody can look at the city of refuge and say, I want to do that. But there's a whole lot of stuff behind that, right? right? right. Yeah. <laughs> to, to get you to get you where you are. So um, yeah, so I think I think for a lot of pastors, a lot of local church leaders, we we fight that that urge. You know, we, we it's not that pastors don't care, I find most of the time. It's right. not that they don't dream. Most of the time, it's just they don't know how to start with step one. Right. Well, and, and again, growing up in a pastor's home, the first conversation you generally have is how do you grow your church? Right. Right. So we want to grow and nothing wrong with that. We want more people right. because that means more people have accepted Christ. Right. But but when we talk, if we if we narrow the conversation to just talking about how to grow the church mm. versus how to impact the community. Mm -hmm. Right. So if the pastor has the heart, I'm going to impact the community. The natural result of that to me would be you grow the church. Right. The more people you have the right, the opportunity to sit with, talk with and share with, the more likely they are to come be part of your family, part of the of the congregation and the community that comes together on a regular basis. Yeah, I forget what the actual statistic is, um, but anyway, the churches that are that are dying in America are the ones that don't reflect the community that right. they're actually existing right. in, um, because communities change, right? So uh, culture changes, and so um, learning how to to adjust, cope, change, and sort of integrate community into into your local congregation is such a key point. Okay, so now now to students and and. Um, I'm thinking about college students here on our campus. Um, when I came here last year as the campus pastor, when I thought about Missions Week, my, my heart was to activate them into, into missions, right? So there are many opportunities available, both here in Cleveland, Atlanta with you, around the world. 
Um, but one of the key, the key things is, is helping students realize that they actually can live on mission now, right? Um, and so I guess my question is, how would you encourage a college student today in one of our classrooms? Encourage them to actually take that step to live on mission right now to not wait. Right. Well, I think uh, we'll use the term a little bit around City Refuge about living aware. Mm. And so just to wake up every morning and have this awareness of where you are, yeah. who you are first in Christ, but who's around you. Right. So you're aware as you walk the sidewalk or you go into the gym or you walk into a classroom, being aware of the environment, not just solely focused on where you're going or what you're doing, being aware of the environment. That guy over there has had that same sort of sad look for three days. Yeah. Right. This young lady here sort of sits in a corner by herself every time she's in the classroom. Right. What's going on around us and being being aware of our surroundings, being aware of the people in our surroundings, any change we might see in them, any place of brokenness we might can begin to detect and then just simply starting some one little step, one little conversation, one little outreach to that individual. Again, it, it goes back to the one-on-one relationships, right? And I think everything that we do starts small and has the opportunity to grow large. But those one-on-one things, most of us, and, and even in ministry, we're not aware often. Right. We, we have a goal, we have a target, and we're just driving to get to that. Right. So we're right, just moving. And we miss so many opportunities for God moments along the way. So I think with students in a college environment, you know, some of them are under stress to make good grades. Some right. of them are, you know, they're going to sports practice and trying to go to class and trying to live up. Some of them come from broken home environments, right? All these kind of things and just the culture pressures that come that it's often uh, – it's often very difficult to be aware of those around us and be aware right. of our surroundings. That, that would be number one is to be aware. And number two then would be to activate, right? So if we're aware of something going on, how do we activate our own resource? If that may be our emotion, that may be mm. our resources, that may be uh, our attention, whatever it is. So just, just an awareness and then an activation once that awareness. Uh, again, being moved with compassion is one thing. Being moved with compassion and following with action that relieves whatever brought the compassion is a whole nother level of, of living for the Lord. Oh, that's great. Yeah, be aware. And I think um, awareness doesn't require much, right? Right, yeah. It's just it's just, just opening decision. your eyes yeah. and, and paying attention to what's happening around right. you. And man, what an incredibly authentic way to actually make a difference in somebody's lives, right? You never know how much uh, a smile may mean, right? right? Uh, so anyway, thank you. Be aware and activate. Okay, so we're we're getting close to time here, but uh, one of the more exciting things that you guys are doing at the City Refuge right now, it's really picking up steam, um, is in the area of human trafficking. I, I spent, um, my master's degree was in government public policy with an emphasis on, on human trafficking law and uh, international law specifically just because of the lack of prosecution across the world of, of, of people who participate in human trafficking. But the City Refuge and the House of Cherith uh, which is uh, ran by your daughter, Kelsey, who's going to be speaking in chapel on Thursday. Um, you guys are doing some incredible work. And I just really wanted to emphasize the House of Cherith because I think it's one of the, the fastest growing aspects of what you're doing at City of Refuge. And I think it's one of the more uh, personal sort of deep transformational things that you guys are doing there as well. And so uh, talk to me for a few minutes about this, uh, about the House of Cherith. Yeah. And it's, it's, uh, it is the most emotional thing potentially, you know, everything we do has some level of emotion, but you know, when you sit down with a young lady that's 23, that's been trafficked since she was five, yeah. so 18 years, that's all she's known. 
and by her family, right? And so you just got all of this stuff coming in, and sometimes in the name of religion. Right. Uh, and so just so many pieces. It's alarming to me, and, and the reports vary all over the board, but somewhere between 27 and 32 million people trafficked annually worldwide now. Yeah. That's the largest number in the history of civilization. It's unbelievable that in 2019 we're having that conversation. Yep. In America, so uh, America's responsible for $50 billion annually in sex trade and, and human trafficking, labor trafficking as well. It's $150 billion worldwide industry, and America's responsible for a third of that. Right. So we're less than a fifth of the world's population responsible for a third of the money spent around trafficking. Atlanta, our city, not $290 million a year is what the GBI estimates spent on trafficking in, right. our, in our city. Uh, we're number one in the nation on uh, volume of calls to the national hotline for trafficking per capita, number seven in total number of calls. So it's everywhere. And it's driven by a big sports town, convention town. It's driven by poverty. It's driven by addiction and mental illness. And, and it's just something that unfortunately those who follow Christ have sort of turned their eye away from mm. a little bit because it's so difficult to even grasp. And then to have a conversation, you know, we have to talk about sex out loud and about perversion yeah. out loud. And it's just difficult. In the last few years, you've seen some turn on that. The church is starting to adopt more of this idea of rescue and restoration. Right. House of Cherith was birthed six years ago as a safe house. We quickly understood that there was not enough bed, there were not enough beds in the nation to accept those coming out of our safe house. So we added a second house, a third house, now a fourth house. So we have 38 beds for survivors of trafficking and exploitation. Full trauma-informed care, clinicians, case managers, social workers, vocational component, the spiritual component to walk that journey, to, to re reclaim, renew, and rekindle, you know, in their life. Um, it, it breaks our hearts every day. And uh, but it also brings a great amount of joy. Now, six years in, more than 700, more than 700 women have resided on our campus mm. in the anti-trafficking survivor program. And to see some of them five and six years out now, restored in a right relationship with Christ, living a sustainable life, living an independent life, contributing to society. Some of them reconciled to their family if it's appropriate. Uh, it's just an amazing thing to see that happen. Um, but it is heartbreaking, Rob, and it's one of those things that the younger generation is more subjected to than, than I was when I was growing up. For sure. Right? You can look at everything sexual on your iPhone in, a, in one click, right? Yep. So we've just, we've sort of, uh, we've sort of taken away the shock because of society. Technology, there's very little shock to the things mm -hmm. in the world today because it's just commonplace. This still shocks me. It still makes me weep at night. It makes me angry. It makes me yep. want to go after people. Uh, and and I hope that's what I hope that's the same sentiment that the folks that listen to this podcast, students on this campus. I so I hope they're still heartbroken and angry when they hear the story of young women who've been trafficked. Yeah, it's incredible. I think um, I can't remember exactly. Maybe you know. I think the United States is the highest. So you have origination countries: right. Russia, uh, Cambodia, Vietnam. You have transition countries. A lot of those are in Europe, Central right. Europe especially. Then you have destination countries like the United States. And right. I think I think the United States is the highest destination country in the world for traf right. traffic children and women. Yep, that's the reports uh, I've read. Yeah. So uh, I think it's, it's something, again, uh, that we have to be aware of. And I think it's something, again, that, that you know, you wonder how you can make a difference on such a huge scale, right? right? Uh, but I think it all comes back to that idea that you had at the very beginning, that radical relationship. And it's being aware and it's being all of these things. 
and just being willing to take the risk to say something if you see something, right? right? And so um, I, I know the House of Cherith is doing incredible work, um, but it's it's not enough. Yeah, so. and this is one of those spaces, you know, many things I'll tell folks, if you if you have a heart for those that are hungry, then take them some food. Right. Or This is one of those spaces where you have to be careful, Yeah. right? You can't just jump into this space. You need to volunteer with an organization that's trained and equipped and qualified and knows what they're doing. You can't just go to a street corner where you see a young lady that you think might be in, tra be in traffic and start to have a conversation with her because a John or a pimp yep. will come up and take care of you right now. I mean, this is just, it's a dangerous territory. Right. And so there are, there are some really good-hearted, well-intentioned people that find themselves in really difficult, dangerous environments if they don't do this well and do it the right way. And uh, so, I, you know, the, the two things we encourage people to do in the anti-trafficking is to pray, obviously, against the darkness. Number two is to partner with an organization that has been doing this a long time, knows what they're doing, is well thought of, and you can partner financially or volunteer, multiple ways to volunteer right. or to give, but be careful about just diving into this and, and sort of being the warrior that's going to go in this. Yeah, because you get yourself in trouble really quick. <laughs> and thank you for, for suggesting that because I think that's that's important. And there are tons of good organizations Absolutely. out there that are fighting against human trafficking all across the United States. So uh, there's easy ways to get connected on that. Uh, just a couple couple last little questions here before we close, Bruce. Uh, one of the things that we always ask on our show um, is what is the greatest lesson you learned in college outside of the classroom? You know, it's uh, it's interesting. I am a, I'm a little bit of a loner, sort of just run on my own. Uh, one of the greatest things I learned outside of the classroom was the power of friendship. Mm. And, uh, you know, I didn't have a huge circle of friends. I, some of those listening to the podcast may remember an organization, sort of unofficial organization on campus called the Brotherhood back in the day. <laughs> and, uh, and I was part of the Brotherhood. And actually, one of the Brotherhood members showed up at chapel today because he heard I was here. And he oh, came, good. He's on staff at a church in town. I won't call his name. But anyway, uh, <laughs> so we had some uh, Brotherhood members this morning. But the power of friendship that, you know, when we run into each other 36 years later now since I left Lee. It's the same as it was yeah. then. And so for me, it was a smaller circle than a lot of folks, but it's a really powerful circle. And so I think the power of friendship uh, in good and bad ways, right? I mean, because we negatively influenced each other along the way with some of our behavior but uh, and had a lot of fun together. But the, the power of friendship is one of the greatest things I've taken from my time at school. That's so great. Bruce, you have no idea how inspiring and uh, encouraging you've been uh, for me personally today, and uh, even the few times that I've been to City Refuge, just being able to see what actually happens on the ground there is just absolutely phenomenal. But uh, I want to thank you so much uh, for being on the show. And uh, if you haven't got the book yet, get it. It's Trust First. It, it will change your life. It is an amazing collection of just incredible stories and just lessons um, through Bruce and, and just the experiences that he's had the last 20 plus years. But uh, so get the book if you haven't gotten it yet. You can get that on Amazon. Yep. You can get that. Any, any, uh, most bookstores and Amazon's the easiest place. Airports. Yep. I know it's all over right <laughs> now, So, uh, which is incredible. So how can people stay in touch with you, get in touch with City of Refuge? Sure. So uh, www.cityofrefugeatl.org is our website. Uh, at City of Refuge ATL on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Um, 
at Bruce Deal One, the number one on Twitter, and of course Bruce Deal on Facebook. So any of those things, uh, if you just Google City Refuge Atlanta, most of that'll pop up. And uh, we'd love to have folks check it out. Have love to have folks come visit, take a tour, and uh, see what's going on there. Incredible. Thank you so much, Bruce. And uh, as we always say on the Collectives Co podcast, you always have a seat at the table. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you very much. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of the Collectors Code Podcast. Would you do us a favor and subscribe, rate, and review, and share this on social media so this content can reach other great leaders? Yeah.